Today on the Awesome Book Club podcast, we are going to be marking Black History Month by discussing Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. This book is hailed by Toni Morrison as required reading. It is a number one New York Times bestseller, a National Book Award winner, uh, the NAACP Image Award winner, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist, and named one of the 10 best book of the year by the New York Times Book Review. This book is a hard one to pin down, so I'm going to let the blurb on the book's page on Amazon do the talking. And a profound work that pivots from the biggest questions about American history and ideals to the most intimate concerns of a father for his son, Ta-Nehisi Coates offers a powerful new framework for understanding our nation's history and current crisis. Americans have built an empire on the idea of race, a falsehood that damages us all, but falls most heavily on the bodies of black women and men. Bodies exploited through slavery and segregation, and today threatened, locked up, and murdered out of all proportion. What is it like to inhabit a black body and find a way to live within it? And how can we all honestly reckon with this fraught history and free ourselves from its burden? Between the World and Me is Ta-Nehisi Coates' attempt to answer these questions in a letter to his adolescent son. Coates shares with his son and readers the story of his awakening to the truth about his place in the world through a series of revelatory experiences, from Howard University to Civil War battlefields, from the south side of Chicago to Paris, from his childhood home to the living rooms of mothers whose children's lives were taken as American plunder, beautifully woven from personal narrative reimagined history, and fresh, emotionally charged reportage. Between the World and Me clearly illuminates the past, bracingly confronts our present, and offers a transcendent vision for our way forward. If you enjoy hearing us talk about this book, then we highly encourage you to go on to Amazon and pick up a copy. You can find that Kindle copy for 10 bucks, or they got hardcovers for less than 15 Now I'm going to stop talking and get out of your way so we can wrap up this conversation of Between the World and Me by Tanahasi Coates. All right, welcome back to Awesome Book Club. We are This is the second episode or second part of our our uh, analysis of Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. We started this with each of us sharing a little bit about what this book meant for us um, and and kind of what it made us think. I think one of the really interesting things uh, that was said by Danny, and I'll have you start, Danny, is that it really created an internal dialogue where you're kind of thinking about some of the interesting parts. Before we get to you, Danny, let's just all introduce ourselves real quick. My name is Kurt. I am quarterbacking this episode, and I chose this book. My name is Brett. I am not quarterbacking this episode, but I read the book. My name's Taylor. I'm playing safety here. I don't know. That was stupid. (laughs) Actually, that was great. I wish I said something clever like that. My name is Danny, and I'm definitely the punter. And also... (laughs) Also the equipment manager for Kurt, who is Tom Brady, and the Megasher's Never mind. <laughs> really winning on the comedy side. <laughs> great banter, y'all. We're our, this is a comedy podcast almost. Um, there are two. Okay, Danny, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about kind of like this book starting an inter- internal dialogue 
with you and, and kind of some of the things that made you think about. Yeah. So I think, uh, one of the biggest things was I kept asking myself what this meant to me. And I kept telling myself, it's not about me. Should, I mean, should, should I be thinking about what my feelings are or should I be thinking about the message that's trying to be told? Should I be thinking about a solution to these problems? Am I being arrogant by thinking that I can even provide a solution to these problems that I can be part of the solution? It, it was, um, it, it wasn't anything that was very linear. It was tough for me to keep, keep track of. Um, I think uh, one of the things like by, by about this time in the book, uh, like I had said before, I had felt this, this like blame, like I was being blamed, like this person was angry at me. And I remember seeing at some point I had read something um, that I think it got me a little more fired up. And I said something, I started saying to myself, I said, why, why are you blaming me? I didn't create this problem. I want this problem to, to be fixed. I would have done it a different way if I could have. It's like, you know, because I was born white, because my parents were white, you're going to hate me because of that. And I haven't had any choice in that. Why are you hating me for that? And then, then I got it a little bit. I'm not saying I had it figured out, but I think that that helped frame my point of reference in that this book about frustration and situations that are terrible. And it's, it, it's not about necessarily always finding a solution to that, but um, being, being able to express that and recognize that as reality. I like that. And it actually reflects well when we were talking about the kind of like what to do about it earlier and checkboxes and affirmative action. I, I kind of thought, I, I didn't, I almost had zero thoughts about how to make things better reading this book. I was just so into the emotion of it and like just really trying to feel what he was sharing. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I, that's great. Thanks for sharing that, Danny. That I, I really appreciate that. Rhett, I know to open up, you talked about this being extremely hard to read and, and very personal. Um, Tell us more about that. Expand on that a little bit. Yeah, well, I think Danny, Danny's point really ties in with why it's so difficult to read and why it's so personal. And on top of, you know, the parts that I talked about, which, you know, the parts that re- we just ended on it, but the part that uh, really resonated with me the most was the part about him, <clears throat> you know, leaning into fatherhood and uh, accepting his responsibility as a caretaker for a young being on this planet. But uh, Danny just to kind of expound on what he was saying and in conjunction with how I think I interpreted it and how it emotionally impacted me. It is, it is a really difficult book. Um, and because it's so personal and I think I said it at the beginning of the last episode, it often feels, you know, because even, even though it, I guess Kurt kind of shed some light on it, that it might not necessarily have been like directly addressed to his son, like in the literal sense, uh, more like in the kind of memoirish way that people can be where they're, you know, I may no longer be here someday. So like, here's, here's some lessons for you, son, uh, because, but because he addresses it that way and because he is pretty much throughout the whole book directly addressing his son, calling him by name and saying, you, all that sort of thing. It often feels like we're really stepping into like these personal moments between a father and a son. And anybody who knows me <laughs> knows that one of my weak spots in media 
uh, in general is uh, fathers and their sons uh, gets me weepy every time. Um, And to kind of bounce it in another direction as well. um, I think one of the things that's so difficult about this book as well is that I knew when it was done that we'd be sitting here discussing it. I think the only thing that I've really learned about, um, I guess, like privilege and the isms of the world, racism, sexism, that type of thing. I think I think the main thing that I've learned is to speak less and to listen more. And I think talking about these podcasts, you guys heard in the uh, talking about this book in general, you guys heard in the first episode, me like running around in circles trying to describe these things that the book provoked in me and the and these emotions that are brought up and these thoughts that i had and it's hard to put it into words and it's hard to translate i think like the emotional impact that this book has because of those types of things because i've sort of i've sort of trained myself uh, for lack of a better word over the last decade or so to speak less listen more I know nothing of what it's like to be a black man in this world. I know nothing of what it's like to be a black man in Baltimore, let alone the rest of the world. I know nothing of what it's like to be a woman in this world. And so the fact that like we're now sort of like having to unpack this emotional like haymaker of a book is just like it's really difficult. Whoa, that's (laughs) so well said. Brett, gosh, I... Yeah, wow. Hey, Taylor, go for it. Um, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. Uh, one, I kind of want to reply back to Dan and do um, because throughout my life, I've and throughout my life, I've felt similar things before where you're kind of like, well, why is it my fault? You know, um, and I think that a lot of people who are maybe not as close to the issue can say that but the reason that we we have kind of a call to the action is because we've benefited from their suffering and their lack of privilege compared to us you know like he talks about um <clears throat> white parents dreamers raising their kids to believe that they can conquer the world and black parents having to train their their kids to be fearful of white people basically right that's why we have well that's why it matters right that's why we have to to step up and try like one i wrote um after reading something on page 14 i don't know exactly what was said i wrote that i've never thought about how i could be scary to someone of color my privilege gives me power that they and it could be used for evil that is scary sad and humbling and it made me like i i had never had that thought before like i feel like i'm a very approachable person i'm very nice i try to listen i try to treat people equally you know but somebody who doesn't know me they just see me as being like a white person maybe they're hesitant to approach me i don't know and that makes me kind of sad right it's not something I had ever thought about. So that's that's why we should care. Like we should try to change that. Um, and a lot of this book touches on just America in general because going back to French class or whatever, he talks about not 
feeling like he needed to learn French because he would never get there. But then later in the book, he does end up in France and he, he feels so different there, right? Because the history of France isn't as like detrimental to black people than the history of America. And so I feel like a lot of this book also just calls out America for all of the shit that we did, basically. Um, there's two quotes that I really liked that represent a lot of the viewpoints, I think, in this book. And it also makes me really wish that, that certain people I know would be open to reading this kind of a book and listening to different viewpoints on page eight, he says, America believes itself exceptional, the greatest and noblest nation ever to exist, a lone champion standing between the white city of democracy and the terrorists, despots, barbarians, and other enemies of civilization. On page 13, he says, America understands itself as God's handiwork, but the black body is the clearest evidence that America is the work of men. <laughs> like, talk about two sentences that just like the first one <laughs> like calls America out for like thinking it's so badass and then using basically the the black experience to just be like no you're wrong <laughs> America is America because slave labor and persecution and all of this horrible stuff happened yeah and I think it's like part of, you know, not to, I don't mean this to sound personal and I'm not going <clears> to, <throat> not going to mention anything that happened off, off the air. But I think that's part of the reason why Make America Great Again is such a slap in the face to so many people. There's a quote, taking it back, uh, like Taylor did, there's one that, uh, it really stuck with me on page eight. One not, one cannot claim to be superhuman and then plead mortal error. You know, if American exceptionalism was a real thing, then we would have no problem holding ourselves to a greater standard and holding ourselves to a higher standard in how we treat each other and how we treat black people. You know, I mean, he says it throughout the whole book that the police, um, the way that the police treat black people in America is a direct extension of American ideals. And time and time again, the excuse that we hear whenever violence um, is instituted against black people by law enforcement. It's like, well, they're just people. They're just people in a high stress job and all of these things. And while that's true, they are just people. You take it a step further and, and go along the route that he was saying. It's, you know, that they're an extension of American ideals. You know, we should be saying that America is just, you know, people and we need to start acting like it. But everybody walks around like we're the greatest freaking thing that ever happened to anybody. Go ahead, Kurt. Yeah, I I think, I mean, we've really narrowed, zeroed in here on his two main points of the book, which is about whiteness and specifically American whiteness. And I, I think it's really good to talk about America so specifically. I love that there's a quote that you guys were talking about, which is, hey, if we're so exceptional, we should be held to a higher standard. You know, we should have an exceptionally high standard. And I think that we we kind of do both. We hold our we say we're so exceptional, and then we forget all these bad things that we we've done because we're so exceptional. Which I I um obviously there's there's errors there, but then kind of bringing it forward to 
one of the the most powerful moments in the book where he has his, his uh, son and soon after Prince George is killed or Prince Jones, sorry. He says that Prince Jones was not killed by a single officer as much as he was killed by his country. And I think that I'm sure he didn't write that a month after the, <laughs> the actual incident. You know, I'm guessing it's taken him years to kind of go back through that. And then I felt like one of the most powerful parts of the book then comes next where he's unpacking what exactly it took to build somebody like Prince Jones. He talks about music lessons and little league and all, like private tutoring and, you know, to create this extraordinary powerful and friendly and and like wonderful black man and then it was just like taken away and not not by this one person but by like america and by our kind of us as a whole i that was one of the saddest times reading for me because he just listed out here are the investments that this family made to make their son as like good as possible and guess what it was all taken away for absolutely no reason other than this is what happens all the time and i i just oh my gosh like that i just this part was really hard for me well there's there's an element of that part that's interesting as well and that isn't that like uh is he shot by a black cop yeah he doesn't reveal that to us until later and i think he like played his cards that way on purpose Right. Um, because I don't know about all you guys, but I assumed it was a white guy. And I think that's his point, though, with that, with not revealing that until later, is it doesn't really matter that the cop was black or white because the institution has kind of built built that position to basically be a white position, right? Like like he he uses terminology like, the police officer was a force of nature. Well, here, let's see. They sent the killer of Prince Jones back to go to work. He was not a killer at all. He was a force of nature. The helpless agent, if our world's physical laws, or of our world's physical laws. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And the I system think, designed it that way. And I think he, he um, kind of frames it the way that he does. Um, as well, because he's also making a point about, you know, I mean, the unfortunate thing is, is because the narrator's voice, I mean, we hear him telling this tale of this person he knew being murdered and the, we draw our own biases. Well, because of the narrator's voice, like he must've been white, right? It's kind of like that, that like, it's not a joke so much as it is like some sort of like a riddle or something where, you know, the son is in this car accident and goes to the hospital and, you know, the son and a father are in a car accident. They go to the hospital and then the doctor comes out and is like, that's my son or whatever. And everybody's like, what? How does he have two dads? <laughs> when in reality, his mother is the doctor. We all just assume that he's a man because of like our intrinsic biases. And because of our intrinsic biases that are sort of like given to us through this, we assume that he's white. But also I think he does it because because of the way that critics of this type of viewpoint try to like portray like black on black crime, right? Like you hear it time and time again, whenever issues of race come up or like, you know, when Ferguson was going on and it's like, these people are just like, well, like, of course that, you know, their world is more violent. Have you seen the black on black crime rates as though like that just like exonerates like any sort of 
wrongdoing by the institution in general. It's like, well, at least the the rate of which they kill each other is exponentially higher than but the rates of which white cops kill black or you know black people. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like they use it as an excuse, and so I can understand why he would frame it the way he does. And I, I just there's a quote that's in my head about that where he talks about later that when someone brings up black and black crime, it's like you shoot somebody. And then you criticize them for bleeding. And so, you know, he's saying, yeah, okay, you can look at the bleeding and say, this is bad. But let's take one step earlier and, and say, why is it bleeding? And it's bleeding because, you know, uh, we, we've shot them and we've set up scenarios and, and situations where, like, that's going to happen. The line, the line that kind of talking about that and, like, Taylor was getting really close to it and I started to get really excited because it was – my favorite line out of the entire book. So the, the one that I, it just stuck with me and it was the shortest one I, I highlighted, but it says the earthquake cannot be subpoenaed. Like that imagery I thought was just incredible. Like I will forever remember that, but I, he goes on to say the typhoon will not bend under indictment. They sent the killer of Prince Joan back to work because he was not a killer at all. He was a force of nature, the helpless agent of our world's physical laws. Holy crap. Yeah, I, wow. I got chills again. <laughs> that's that's super powerful. Do you think, like, it's crazy to think because the way he paints it even, it's like, th- this is true because we all sort of collect these ingrained, like, prejudices and biases, uh, you know, just like the doctor thing that I was just saying. It's like that the world that we have set up ha- ultimately led that cop to those decisions, right? Almost like predestiny in a weird way. Which is like what it, that's like what privilege is in a sense, right? Like privilege is the chance to like escape that predestiny in a sense. Not that yeah. predestiny is real, but you know. I, I mean. Well, one thing that I don't know why it brings me back to is just hit him describing the experience of going through that one district or whatever where the cops are known for like planting stuff and Prince like George's county. Um, yeah. He gets pulled over and he's sitting in his car just terrified. Like, oh, it is. Right? When I get pulled over by a cop, I'm nervous, but I don't think I'm going to die. Yeah. And in fact, this, it really kind of highlighted the difference between me and Tanahasi Coates. A few weeks ago, I was driving back up home. Uh, and I had just, I just pulled on the freeway and I'd locked eyes with this cop. He was a, an Oregon state trooper. And for whatever reason, it's like I locked eyes with him and I knew that he was going to get behind me. And he tailed me for like 25 miles down the freeway directly behind me and stop and go traffic. So he was behind me for a while. I, I had just gotten on the freeway from Eugene and he pulled me over like a couple miles away from Albany. And he pulled me over and I was so upset that I verbally accosted this officer. I cussed him out. I swear. I told him to fuck himself and all of these things like that. And he asked me like at one point, like, oh, are you just coming from work? And I was like, no, I just fucking wear this uniform whenever I want to have a good time, asshole. Like, you know, I was that I, I swear at him dozens of times. And he let me go with an apology. He apologized to me. And the whole time I drove home and I was just like, 
I had just like read some story about how some black kid had like gotten tased for like jaywalking or something, you know? Like that's the difference between my world and his. Where he can get pulled over somewhere and he's shaking and scared out of his mind and I can get pulled over and I can I can just lay into this guy and face no he didn't even give me a warning. He didn't give me any paper that said this stop happened. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. That is a terrifying. I, I, I don't mean to laugh at all, but all of us were just like, oh shit. <laughs> I mean, he, uh, he came back and it's like, the whole time I was thinking too, I was like, you know, because I, I don't really like police in general. And you can quote me on that. And I work with them very closely. And they're very, very, there's a lot of admirable police officers, sure. They're just people like us doing a job more often than not, especially in our area, it seems. But um, I hate interacting with them. And he pulled me over, and the first words out of his mouth were like, are you smoking marijuana? Are you drunk? What did you throw out of the window? Like, that was his order of questioning in a row. Now, imagine somebody who, like, doesn't know that they're a freaking privileged little shit like I am. You know, somebody who doesn't know that, you know, he had asked me if I had been drinking, like, in three different ways so as to like have me answer differently have you been drinking today no are you sure you didn't have any drinks today yes (laughs) you know he had me answer differently and i was thinking the whole time or afterwards when i was driving home it's like somebody who just doesn't like know the system as well as i do i mean i kind of like i work with police a lot so i know how to talk to them apparently (laughs) and uh it just gets me all the time because there's people who don't know that and they're taken advantage of. They, they slip up on an answer and then all of a sudden that cop has like probable cause to like do something, right? That's the story we hear time and time again. And all it's like, I think the, the case that he makes about, uh, you know, Prince Jones is that like what? He was wearing a hoodie or something at night. And then that's the story you hear for all of these slayings in like recent memories. Like Eric Garner was like what? Selling cigarettes or something? Like... If I had been pulled yeah. over for selling cigarettes, like I would have like ruined that cop's life. But I, I have this like weird position in life because of how I look that I can get away with that. Like it's just bizarre and it's sad. And it's actually one of the great tragedies of our country. To contrast that, I mean, of course there are examples in the book and, and you're telling the story of, of Ta-Nehisi, but I, I talked to somebody that went to college at Concordia, which is just in Portland um, near where I went to school. A black student brought a car to college his first year and counted the number of times he got over in the next four years. It was 47 times. And no tickets. He didn't get pulled over for any reason ever. Just cops like checking in on stuff. And yeah, I, I guess Portland, maybe the police force is a little more progressive. So, like, luckily he escaped those without an, a violent encounter. But, you know, that. There's just example after example of like racial profiling and then that racial profiling leading to just violence and yeah, people's well, lives being cut short. If he got pulled over 47 times each time, it's like he's flipping a coin. Yeah. yeah. And the worst That's part so is, is, scary. Like, is they the cops know when they don't give you any literature after they pull you over. Like they know what that means. Like there's nothing on the books other than like a radio call back to HQ that says like what happened. Well, going back to the book, um, that was something that really kind of just hit me hard, too, was 
early in the book, he talks just about his, you know, it's kind of him like explaining the point of the book and he's talking to his son and everything. And he brings up how hard it was when, um, I don't remember which kid it was that got killed. And then the officer gets off on a trial, like how hard it was for his son to, to accept because up until then, you know, his, he talks about his son being like just this happy kid who's not scared of anything. And, you know, if they went to like a park and a playground or whatever, he'd just run over and go play with all these kids. And then like at that moment, he realized like he's different. You know, the world treats him differently. And he could have been that kid just for wearing a hoodie or whatever, you know. And, like, thinking about that was just really hard. I'm wearing a hoodie right now. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, He goes on from there. I think this is another thing where, where you know, again, he, he's drawing us in with how hard these situations can be. And you talk about, like, his son being outgoing and, and how he, he's, you know, um, I, I was open to that page right now. And, you know, he's telling me, he said, we don't know these folks. Be cool. Um, this is really hard for him to see his son uh, entering into these volatile situations. And then he, he finishes that section, though, with, but now I understand the gravity of what I was proposing, that a four-year-old child be watchful, prudent, and shrewd, that I curtail your happiness, that you submit to a loss of time. And now when I measure the boldness of that, the math, this fear against the boldness that the masters of the galaxy imparted to their own children, I am ashamed. And that's something where... Like that's that's so powerful, too, because it to me, a lot of it is a book about, you know, frustrations in a, in a scary situation. And um, but like this is such a redeeming moment, I feel like when he's talking about his fears and and saying, I'm, I'm not going to take away my my son's happiness that has been given to him. And on the heels of everything he's just described to us, that's so incredible. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, in that part, it also seemed, I don't want to say cool, because I don't think that's the right word, but like he acknowledged the fact that even 20, 20 years before that, you know, when we were kids, like early 90s or whatever, he acknowledged that things have gotten better to some extent, you know, like we had the president, Barack Obama, like people are more aware of, of of this kind of thing. And he was kind of like checking his personal experience from back when he was younger against now or, you know, probably 10 years ago or whatever now. But and he didn't want to like hold his son back. Like like I really respected the way that he raised his his son. He like he talks about there's that one situation elevator where he like blows up on these people for pushing his kid, you know? And at first he was like really embarrassed about it. And he was upset at himself because it put both of them in danger, basically, you know, basically what happened was this, they were getting on this elevator, um, going to a movie or something. And this white lady like pushed his son. And I think it was to kind of like push them off the elevator. 
and he like laid into them, you know, like called them racist and all this kind of stuff. And it got like really heated. And then after the fact, he realized like, wow, that was, that was a mistake. Like I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have done that. I put us all in danger. I could have gone to jail and then what would have happened to you kind of a thing. But then he goes back and, and just explains that the way he's raising his son is, is, you know, not to apologize to tell, like, I think Rhett said, you know, he tells it like it is. He wants him to know the world as it really is. He wants to see his in all different lights, but you know, the way he really is, like he doesn't want to have to hide anything from him. And I just found it like really noble. I feel like his son really knows who he is. Yeah. My, and I, I think it's great to highlight that. And, but these are some of my favorite scenes in the book is him kind of being a parent around New York City and going through just, you know, observing what other white families are doing and then seeing kind of the opposite that's happening to his kid. This also, um, just in terms of like a time when there's an answer for that question, why should I, you know, why is this about me? I think about those white children who are being taught dominance and not because their parents are meaning to, but because they're just ignorant of another, you know, they're just trying to give the best life for their kids. And so they're like parading them around the neighborhood without thinking about it, you know, and maybe they don't know any black people and that's totally fine. And, you know, like you could easily raise your kids and not, not tell them about the oppression of minorities and people of color and then have them grow up to just be oblivious to it, you know? And, and I think that's kind of what he's saying is that a lot of these families aren't being as, as he is and like trying to teach their kids about how other people experience the world. I kind of wonder too, like with the way we grew up and where we grew up, <laughs> like I don't want to say anything damning or anything, but it's like we just grew up in such a place where there was no diversity. I mean, you detract a little too much from where we lived. I mean, obviously like where we grew up was the first place that I ever like saw what racism looked like when a teacher called a fellow second grade student, a Ruski. That's true. But at the same time, like we did have like plenty of Hispanic and like Russian Orthodox people, at least like in my class, it was like, more than half you know hispanic mm. kids um i don't but i don't really feel like black. we were taught so much about no and no we the weren't difference in experiences is kind of not no. is kind of what i meant yeah I you're right and i think i think ultimately like where when i look back and see how we were raised like where we were it's like not so much that like we were raised without knowing about it but it's like we're like we're raised it's like our way is like the best way (laughs) you know and you see this like throughout the country like especially like okay with everything with like the sexual assault stuff like kind of in the in the national spotlight it's like well she just like if maybe she wasn't dressed like that okay well maybe if that kid wasn't wearing a hoodie why didn't that kid just listen to the cops you know that's what it's like and it's always like our way is the best way you know and it's like that's kind of what I always feel like I got from where we grew up. It's like this idea that it's like in, or, like 
in order to be safe and in order like the best thing for you to do is to just fit in <laughs> and if you don't do that then it's your fault if something bad happened to you i think with that discussion you know we get into those concepts i think there there's got to be an element of that that's human nature to kind of circle the wagons around your tribe and that doesn't not to be said as a means to justify it but as a method to like if we're going to look at solving that problem and this is probably getting a little bit away from the book but i think it's just in terms of how i process this is like there's things that our human nature inclines us towards i think and i think we have to understand that that's what we're up against when we're processing these issues you know, honestly, I hadn't thought about that in, in reading through this. And, and I think it's a, it's definitely something that I'll, that I'll like toss and turn on because I'm, I'm not sure what I, what I think about that. Um, I do, I, I guess one thing I would say is that I think the line of human nature or the influence of that is, is smaller than I used to think it was. I guess I, I, I think there was a time when I thought there were some more like immutable things going on here, but you know, a lot of this seems very man-made for lack of a better word. I, I, I do feel like this hasn't just happened, but it's been constructed and well, I, and, I think, and I'm, yeah, go for it. I think it would, maybe a better way to say it is like human nature so much as passively adopted at times, like like without question, I mean, slavery and and some of the social structures that have been put in place were very actively done. You know, Jim Crow laws and segregation, very active. But there's an element of, if you want to talk about like the the way that uh, you know certain people for our own our own hometown think about you know themselves or their families or their kids or what they're doing, they'll really only know what's come before or after them. You know, there's a lack of exposure to another side of things. And does that for so I'm not trying to provide a measure of forgiveness or absolution for anybody. I'm saying that if you're going to solve the, the a problem, you have to you have to take a good look at the real causes of it, which is people have a lack of perspective. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think that pushes us into almost a, a wrap-up conversation. I, I know we're still, we're not super close to the end, but I want to start kind of like thinking about big themes because I know he, he kind of starts wrapping like that. But a quote, this is my favorite quote of the book. I know, Danny, you said yours. I'd be interested to hear Taylor and Rhett's later. Is is a quote on page 98 where he says, to acknowledge these horrors means turning away from the brightly rendered version of your country as it has always declared itself and turning towards something more murkier and unknown. A, again, this is the point of the whole podcast, so we're turning towards something murkier and unknown, and I am excited by that. And and B, I think, Danny, to, to what you're saying is like, a lot of people don't want to make that turn. And a, and a lot of people are happy or, you know, maybe haven't had been exposed to the more darker parts and just want that brightly colored version and and like that's enough and they and i think that was a perfect quote to kind of go along with 
with I think what I was trying to articulate. And obviously, there's no way I could have ever articulated it as masterfully as as he tends to do in his writing. And that's kind of the beauty of writing, though. I mean, he had a chance to really pour over his choice of a word. And I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of his book is that he's so concise and so economic with his words. You know, and maybe that comes from his upbringing as a black man in a place that doesn't value him, that he's got to make his point. You've got to make his point in 150 pages or less, you know. And there's, like I said earlier, there's so many lines in this book that are just so freaking powerful. And it's one sentence. There are very few authors, very few journalists who have the power to just punch you right in the emotional gut with one sentence the way that he does a hundred times in this book. I mean, a hundred times in the first, like, <laughs> like the first 20 pages. Is it so like you're talking about wrap up conversations and everything. Um, I know you have listed on like the, the the talking points for today at the like the very last page is something I want to touch on. I don't know if that's some, if we're there yet, but yeah, I, I think that I'm looking at, at just you know to sum up the rest of the book. He he starts reflecting on a lot of things, and then he he goes to Paris. I thought was an interesting part, but but maybe didn't pack the punch of some of some of the rest of it, but did offer some perspective. Um, but I, I, I think in terms of wrap up, I just mean, I think it's time to, to just pull back a little bit and, and start trying to think about, um, you know, kind of like our takeaways and, and these bigger themes and kind of some feelings that it's leaving, uh, leaving us. So definitely Danny, I, I'd say go ahead and, um, and talk about the end. Yeah, and that was something that when when he drew drew that together, when you talk about like the plundering of bodies and things like that, uh, he extends that to like he. It's this total like kind of like mic drop. Moment. I don't know if that's the right word, but he like kind of introduces this huge thing, and then like the book ends, and it's like, wait, what? You know, to no. me, but like this whole idea of of you know we have been inconsiderate of our impacts on another nationality on on another people on you know and, and the, the harm that it has caused and you know it's it's interesting because you talk about like a, a message for action and hope and this one thing in watching some of his interviews is like he says like i don't really have hope i don't you know i'm fairly pessimistic about what's going to happen here and it's interesting because he his resolution to this whole thing is basically like this method of plundering bodies uh, that has been extended to this earth and that the people who consider them will ultimately pay the price when, when they can no longer do that. And it's like, Holy shit, that went next level real quick. Um, I thought that was, uh, uh, you know, very powerful. Yeah. I was just going to say, well, so that was the last thing I, I wrote too. I basically said like at the end of the book, he seems to be arguing that the dreamers have caused global warming and will have to struggle through it themselves to save the earth and everyone on it. So like basically the dreamers have caused all of the suffering and destruction so far and they're about to face their own destruction and we'll see if they can get out of it. (laughs) And uh, I think, I think as we've, we've talked in previous podcasts, 
I'm pretty pessimistic and not full of much hope. So maybe that's why a lot of this book, the way he phrases things, in some ways they feel like zings, you know? And he says them with so much like spite and anger that like I, and I don't have, like I shouldn't be able to feel this way, but I like I feel that, you know, like I feel that much anger and spite. Like, and this is why part of this, the reason I love this book, um, I loved reading it, was because it was this journey into another and And whether or not everything he says is the full truth, it's the truth for him. And so as I'm reading it, it's like all true to me. And I'm just like, holy shit, this is crazy. And I'm pissed off just like him. You know, and so like at the end when he's basically like saying like F you, good luck, kind of, you know, like I don't know if you're going to make it, but now's your chance kind of a thing. (laughs) I kind of feel the same way, right? Like I don't have a lot of hope and and knowing like right now who our president is and everything, it's either it's going to go one way or the other. Either we're going to go back and actually make America great again the way that <laughs> those people want to. Or this is America's wake-up call. And I feel like this book is such a huge wake-up call to America that's been ignoring this kind of thing for so long. Like, if you don't understand why people are kneeling for the flag and the, or, you know, for the national anthem in the, in the NFL, like, take a step back and think about it. Read this book. That that should be your first thing you do. Because there's a reason for it. Like, just wake up, America. I think that, you know, kind of what he's saying at the end of the book, it sort of, like, goes hand in hand with, like, the good intentions that we were talking about before, right? And I think, like, part of the cost of the life that, like, we've been afforded to live and, like, middle-class America, happy-go-lucky kids frolicking around and getting into trouble with, like, no repercussions is that um, part of the cost of that is that you just have to ignore, like, all of the negative things that are, like, sort of happening on the other side of the glass, right? Like, there's so much that can be done about any of the stuff that's going on in our world, but, you know, and, I mean our parents' generation, they're the ones that it's like, (laughs) they're more worried about like if they've got the, you know, (laughs) if they've got the nice car and if they've got like the TV and stuff and they're keeping up with their neighbors and, you know, it's like they go to church just so they can see like, you know, like what clothes like their neighbors are wearing and like what car they drove to church and all of these sorts of things. Like rather than like focusing on like what's important, you know, like our relationships and the relationships with our neighbors and the environment and all of these sorts of things. And not to say that that, those were never on their minds. It's just that it's just that in order for them to like maintain the illusion of their like peaceful, blissful lives, they had to just ignore a bunch of the other stuff that's going on. I mean, you can't go and freaking be a consumer that you were programmed to be. If you're, if you're like, you know, quote unquote woke to like the repercussions of like global warming and all this stuff right like you can't go and like freaking buy the best tv every year if you know that the last one is like going into a landfill and like killing penguins and like choking 
our food supply to death, right? Like, and I think it's the same thing with a lot of this. Um, it's a lot. It's the same thing with like a lot of the uh, like cultural stuff and the race racism and things like that, right? Like these people can't enjoy their football games if they don't freaking uh, if they can't ignore the fact that like we're exploiting the people that play in those games, right? <laughs> I mean, okay, you can have your multi million dollar you know, contract every year, if you just shut up about all the bad things that's going on in your life, because I can't afford to like have my little illusion shattered about what's going on. Oh, that is, <laughs> Oh, I am just like riveted by this conversation. I, I do think one of the things that struck me, and this is what you're talking about, Red, is that people are so sensitive to issues like this being brought up and, you know, thinking about kneeling in the NFL there's a lot of people that that makes extremely uncomfortable because then they have to start processing some of these and, and trying to understand why that's happening. And it's much easier to invent a, a reason, which is they're disrespecting our flag, than it is to actually investigate and, and consider kind of what's happening. Well, yeah, I think um, not uh, just to share another quote I, I really love that kind of sums things up which where he's talking about um the civil war and the, the lie of the civil war and it, this is the theme quote from from that show with the with the two guys driving around the confederate flag car what's the name of that show dukes of, dukes hazard. of hazard dukes of hazard yeah yeah just some good old boys never mean and no harm and he says, that's a mantra for dreamers if there ever was one. <laughs> and I, I, I do think that is hilariously spot on because a lot yeah. of people would say, you know, I'm just a, I'm not mean no harm. Like, what, what's the big deal? You know, just a couple. <laughs> and that's, that it like strikes at the heart of exactly what's going on is that, you know, as a society, enough white people are saying that, that we're all innocent. And what? It reminds me so much of a lot of stories I've heard about like my grandparents' generation and my parents' generation and stuff, just like getting into trouble but you know, messing with the cops, like being pranksters and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, okay. Might have been funny to you at the time, but imagine just imagine if you were black and you tried that. Like like my grandpa was talking about this story the other day about them uh, flipping flipping over people. Like, people would sit in the outhouses or whatever, and they'd, like, flip them over. Like, or, or I think, uh, what's that movie, American Graffiti or something? I was hearing another story about, like, tying up the bumper or whatever on a cop car to, like, a telephone pole or something, and it gets ripped off. You know how much trouble you would have been in? Yeah, I I almost got expelled from high school over a misunderstanding um, that, granted, like, I guess didn't paint me in, like, the completely innocent light, but uh, I was not guilty of what they were telling me that I had done. Almost was expelled. And I remember the generation before I was telling stories about riding freaking motorcycles, like, through the halls of the school and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I just... I don't know. The fact the fact that like now we can go to like almost any like corner here in Oregon and like 
buy a freaking ounce of weed if we wanted to and like drive home with it in our cars and get pulled over a dozen times on the way home and have like nothing bad happens to us it's just like a huge slap in the face i think to like all of the mass incarcerations of like black people due to the drug war and all that sort of stuff and it's not just like you were saying it's not just the little pranks that we should be thinking about it's like all of the like all of this type of stuff like just imagine yourself from this other perspective i have no idea where else i was going with that but (laughs) yeah i i just had a kind of a powerful scene that i there's definitely some moments in this book that i just keep thinking about and one of them is he's visiting these old homes in chicago where these kind of like scions of the community live and they have all these memorabilia and he he sees says like you know these these are the people we have but i also knew that behind each of them there were millions that didn't make it that were gone and i just you know like that was another one of those scenes kind of like the white kid in the stroller ruling the street where i just felt like i i feel like i've met old really wise black people like that and been to their houses and been like, oh, yeah, maybe it's not so bad. And I never had the thought he has that's like, these are the ones that made it out. And like so many didn't. And there were ones that were better, you know, people that were even kinder or better. You know, I, I just felt that was crushing. I was crushed yeah. by that. One quote that that reminds me of is um, on page 105, he says, a mountain is not a mountain if there is nothing below. You and I, my son, are that below. That was true in 1776. It is true today. Yeah, that's when he's that's when he's talking about that if our like we basically stand on the violence and without the violence, like we would we would lose our place, and so we perpetuate it because. We want to stay in power. Oh, gosh. It's like, it's like a sacrifice to, like, maintain our, like, happy little status quo that, like, benefits us. Yeah. No one else. Well, to, to some extent, like, the good news is I feel like that it's getting thinner, right? Like, the status quo is, like, getting closer to breaking whether it's what you seem like you want to argue must be watching the different news obviously (laughs) we we live in a different time the the backlash and just the amount of fire that's come out of people wanting to fight trump I think it's going to get generations, uh, our generation, the, n- the next one, fired up about getting these freaking old, racist, like... I agree. Sexist, whatever, people out of office, out of power, to make our society a more equitable place, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think before our generation is done, the boomers are going to really wish that they left the status quo alone. What do you mean by that? 
<laughs> it's going to be the same and it's only going to get like i do sort of agree that it's only going to get better i mean it might get worse before then but uh it's getting worse now i mean yeah yeah like we're sort of um, like, we're sort of like at, nearing the bottom of the valley i hope you know if you're if you're going off peaks and, and valleys here we're hopefully nearing the bottom or hopefully nearing midnight i guess or whatever metaphor you want to apply to it but, oh, that that uh, doomsday clock is pretty close to midnight. It I don't is. Know. Yeah, <laughs> two minutes. Oh gosh. Um, okay, then to kind of turn the conversation towards some final thoughts. I, f- I feel like there's so much more that we can mention, and I know that um, I, I don't want to don't want to go on forever. But I but I also know that there's like some some things that we're leaving out. So I want to leave space for this now at the end. But I want to prime it by saying one of his last quotes is he doesn't believe that he can stop them. He believes like we must stop ourselves. So and I'm, I'm kind of ch- misquoting it to like put it on the burden on us in this conversation. So um, that's the question is, how do we stop ourselves? Um, and I, I, I don't think in this question I'm looking for solutions necessarily or you know policy prescriptions but i I think this is a question what are we individually doing that that could kind of help us be more informed on this topic um rhett you look like you're ready to go i'll I'll pass it to you to me i sort of talked on this before but i think the number one biggest thing that i've ever done to sort of like adjust my sales as it were is to, like I said before, uh, talk less, listen more. And, uh, especially for issues of, um, sexism and racism, it's been just like assuming that like my nat, my first inclination is wrong (laughs) and just like maybe not voicing that inclination, (laughs) you know, which goes with the talk less. Um, and I think if more people, especially people like us, um, four white dudes with like you know came from a small german catholic town um i think of more people like us uh listened rather than preached um and you know did our best to do rather than you know sit and vegetate and let life happen i think that's going to be a, a force for good ultimately you know i mean we can change you know a lot of things and we can change the way that people think and process information if we're just like open to changing the way that we ourselves process that information and be an example to the people that haven't quite made it there yet right like preaching at them and the people that haven't made it yet on their own and arguing with them and yelling at them and uh it's not going to change their minds. You're going to change your mind by being an example. Um, and of course that's not to say that like we can't abide people doing hateful things, especially when somebody's, you know, when they're, when there's somebody's health and safety at risk. Um, you know, I saw stuff like that a lot, uh, in the days after the election, just like open bigots and racists, like, opening their mouths when they otherwise would never have. Um, and because of that, I vowed that I would never keep my mouth closed in those instances, but I'm not going to argue with them. Um, especially 
when I know that like there's no chance of changing the mind, I'm going to be that example and I'm going to listen and I'm going to be thoughtful and I'm going to try to internalize what people like uh, ta Coates have to teach me. And I'm going to do my best to like try to put his example to action. You know, I'm going to try and like live that example. For me, I think it might even be not fully, but um, the opposite of Rhett because my tendency is to not say anything. So like a specific example, when we're at a poker game or something <laughs> and I hear something that is just completely off base, actually voicing my opinion and no longer just maintaining this child status of like, letting your elders talk for the sake of talking because like how how much do we put up with older generations saying really off-based and bigoted things and they don't even think that it's off-base or bigoted right and i think we all have like older people and i don't want to call older people out in general um, but we all have people in our lives what'd you say (laughs) I said, no, they're fucks. Uh, We all have people in our lives that do respect us and care about us that would probably value hearing our opinions on things if we have kind of the courage to speak up and say something. Because like he says, silence is complicity, you know? And I've remained silent in this regard and many other regards for way too long so that's one thing might i real quick just say that when i'm just to clarify for the people listening like when i'm talking about silence i'm talking about learning right i'm not meaning like letting hateful and bigoted people like get away with like rape and plunder um I just mean like in terms of like opening myself to just a chance to like learn rather than pretend that I know it all. Try to try to gain an understanding of different viewpoints. And then I guess the second thing is just to be more well read in in many regards, whether it's reading or I mean, even like music and and film or whatever. Like, man, if you guys watch Get Out that movie in in a certain way i had very similar feelings to that movie that i had about this book because i hadn't seen something quite like it that also kind of called me and my other white folk peers out and it was pretty refreshing honestly <laughs> um so yeah just be just be open um seek diversity I think what we're doing with the book club podcast is a very good start because not only is it a valuable way to spend time with friends, you know, I'm getting to know you guys better and I think we're all getting to kind of like learn new viewpoints, but the fact that we're recording this and putting it out to people, I think, or I hope value and and could also like push others into self-betterment and helping helping others as well so yeah just uh 
speaking out when I when I think I should um, instead of saying quiet and continuing kind of that pursuit of knowledge and, and understanding of different viewpoints is kind of my next steps. Yeah. Building, building off what you guys said, I think for me, I'm looking at this and we started this conversation off by how, how, what's your level of exposure to books like this? And, uh, mine was zero and Taylor, uh, all pretty close to being in the same boat. One of the things that uh, there's a lot of good things that I, that to take away from this book, but one of the things that I, was also in the, the kind of the episode notes that we, we didn't really talk about was like the people that had opposition to black people who've had opposition to what he's written here. Um, obviously this book has already changed my context so much and it's one book and there's thousands out there. I, I need to increase that perspective and I need to put myself in a position where those other perspectives and, and kind of the, the, the average or the median viewpoint of the whole maybe can be better understood um, by, by being exposed to that. I think the other thing too is um, in my mind, I think what, what this, this book identifies a lot and, and a lot of things that he talks about, like, again, like I, I still truly believe that like there's this conversation of like this very active movement of like, of, of white people suppressing black people. And uh, again, that has happened, but sometimes there's things that we do passively that suppress that. And a, a, a good example, and this is a thought I had, and I think it's something that I had because I was reading this book was, you know, I saw a trailer for the black Panther movie the other day. And my, my like immediate reaction, like my, my not like process, just, just emotional reactions. Like, man, I don't want to see that. And I was like, wait, why? <laughs> why don't why don't I want to see that? Or why why is that why is that my initial reaction? Like why, you know, I don't know. Like I don't consider myself a racist person, but like I I, you know, so it's challenging your assumptions and I think that's that's the thing that I'm starting to do is challenging challenging these things that I'm glossing over and I think that's that's where I start to make a difference in myself and that's where um, I think that's got to start. It's got to start with me. I can't change other people. I can't be a leader if I, if I, if I don't have it figured out to a certain extent right here. So I think that's something, um, just recognizing those, those intrinsic, bi intrinsic biases, right, wrong, or indifferent and, and uh, addressing them in the best way possible. Yeah. And for me, you know, I think I'm in a slightly different boat because, you know, I, over the last two or three years, I've tried to make this a focus and this is probably like book number six or seven like this I've read. Definitely gotten into it at least for like the first, I've taken that first step. But honestly, over the past month, I've been really evaluating like, all right, let's look at my bookshelf. How many authors that are non-white and non-male do I have on there? It is a tiny amount. I was looking at my Spotify and I was thinking, how many, how many like non-male artists am I listening to? And it was like literally none. And I, I just, I had kind of become complacent because I had started reading a couple of these books and felt like I had gained some knowledge and then, and then felt like I was settled. And I think what this, 
has has really made me think is that there's so much more to learn you know like i yeah and and there's just at every place of learning there's a there's kind of a plateau where you feel like you've got some things figured out and that's always a falsehood and yeah, and I, I think something that's really important for me now that I have the privilege is that DC is a very diverse city. And in my company of 40 people, there's probably like five or 10 people that are black. And in here, you know, there's, there's, um, I have the opportunity to interact with all kinds of people. And so I think that's a big next step for me also is just really, um, taking this opportunity I have now and, and living into that and really appreciating that and trying to understand and, and learn what I can from the people around me here. Um, so yeah, I just, I feel really fortunate to have that, but man, there's so, <laughs> we have so, such a long way to go, you know, and I, and I feel that very strongly. And I think about the ending scene of this book where it's raining and that's like how it ends. He's just like, and the rain was coming down in sheets or something like that. And it's really on us to change that ending. Like it's, it's really on us to, to make that a different future. And I am more, I'm more optimistic than Taylor for sure. But, but I'm also, but I also believe what you were all saying that it starts at home. Like it starts with me. Um, maybe once I get married, you know, it'll be part of that relationship. Maybe once I have kids, I'll, I'll try to be thoughtful about, teaching them this kind of thing from an early age so they start in a better place than I did and then you know we go from there but I think focusing on the sphere that I control is kind of is, is my future oh man I'm really you know of all the books we've read so far I think this is the one that I felt like has been the most challenging and like the biggest journey for all of us and so I just to the listeners to, to everyone on this podcast Taylor Rhett Danny Holy shit, I'm really happy we did this and I look forward to, to more such journeys. Rhett, you look like you got something to say. No, uh, nothing profound. It was just going to be that, yeah, um, I really regret that uh, we can't give this book like, you know, more time, like just dissect it page by page. And it really was challenging. And I think part of the challenge is like that it's contemporary, it's modern, it's about the world that we are living in right at this moment, a world that we can understand and relate to a world that we see on the news every day. When we, uh, read Anne Frank last month, you know, the book's challenging, but it doesn't challenge you as much. I think as this book w does. And it's just because it, it was so long ago and so distant and, and maybe partially because the author of that book doesn't live in our world anymore. Um, like uh you know the author of this book does the author of this book is walking around and is still making an impact you know and speaking of black panther I want the world to know that apparently tanahasi coates uh authored uh many of the black panther comic books so that's kind of bad <laughs> that's cool but yeah. he's still impacting the world that we live in and he's still making a difference and so it's it's it is a lot different because the author is alive and we can tweet at them right now and tell them how much we disagree with them, you know, whereas, whereas other books, that's might not be possible. Well, thanks for a great pick, Kurt. I know. <laughs> I'm ashamed of my last pick because of this one. It's like Kurt's picked two <laughs> home runs in a row. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. 
No, I think that um, I'm, I this had been on my list for a while, and I'm I'm really happy that I you know we finally made time to read it. And I just a quick plug. I know he just released a new book called We We Were Eight Years in Power, and it kind of contrasts the the reaction to the Obama presidency with the reaction of um, some black congressmen right after this, right after the Civil War, and talks about kind of the backlash to both of those historical events and in, in the present time. So highly recommend that. Um, and yeah, I think we'll be continuing to share books back and forth. Listeners, you're hearing that this is the, the first book for a lot of us to like get in the space. Please recommend more. Send us, uh, send us your recommendations. You can tweet at us at awesome book podcasts. Awesome book club. Oh my gosh. It's so late here. <laughs> <laughs> way past your bedtime or abc at airpodcast.com right yeah you can email us there um before we logged off here taylor did you want to um clue us into what the next pick might be yeah so i'm your next quarterback so buckle up (laughs) Uh, (laughs) running some shotgun plays Um, in this bitch the book that i chose i don't know a lot about but i bet a lot of us can infer um what it's about based off of the title it is called An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Um, and essentially, it's a book told from, the like, telling history from the indigenous people's perspective. And I think kind of going along with Kurt's pick about, uh, you know, learning about different viewpoints... I think we could probably learn a lot about this. Um, and I'm really interested in history. I'm interested in atrocities. And I think we're going to read about a lot of them. So, um, is, is that why you're a duck fan? Oh, oh. <laughs> I was at the civil war, Danny. <laughs> wow, wow. Relating the atrocities that the United States government visits on the indigenous people of our country to uh, a football thing is uh, very, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it was a line. I'm a fan of atrocities. Or... <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not a fan of atrocities, but I like learning about them. So we as humans can, cannot do them again. Um, so I'm excited for the book. I hope you guys are too. I don't know much more about it, but I thought it would, would fit in well. It comes out like... on Amazon, so that's a plus. You, it feel... It's highly rated on Amazon. Listening to Sapiens, like I, I was bummed uh, to have missed out on kind of a kind of fundamental historical book about humanity, I guess, and so I'm definitely looking forward to getting some of that out of this next book. Oh, we got many more to come. Many more. And da- once again, welcome to Danny. So happy to have you. That was a great first podcast um, and excited for many more. I, I'm very glad to be a part and you guys make it easy. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks, Rhett. Yeah, thank you all. Um, before we sign off, did any of you guys want to plug your personal internet sp- spaces so that people could find you and tweet at you and say that your viewpoint was the dumbest most horrendous viewpoint in this entire book club conversation please tweet at me exactly that is at Kurt Burning 
I'm at Taylor J. Bukite. <laughs> we can spell it out in the <laughs> show notes. You can find me at DV Turf. Mm. And I am at Red is Awesome. R E T T is Awesome. And I think Taylor uh, said some of our other stuff earlier. So go ahead and get us out there. You know, this is a book club. So we invite all of you guys to join in and have your voices heard and, uh, and, and join our conversation. Even though the podcast is irreversible, we ain't going back and changing nothing. Uh, you can change the, the direction of the future by tweeting us, emailing us, and uh, letting us know what you thought. Uh, whether you agree, whether you disagree, you loved it, hated it, any of that type of stuff. Thanks for coming on this journey with us, and there will be many more. We'll see you then. I know we already said goodbye and good night. But before you go, I want to remind you again. I just did a minute ago. You heard it. I said it's a club. And uh, because this is a book club, you're listening. You're a part of it. Just a friendly reminder that you can join the conversation on Twitter. We are at Awesome Book Club. Or you can email us, abc at airpodcast.com. And if you find yourself with a moment in your busy day, please, 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 we implore you, leave us a rating and a review. You don't have to lie. Leave us an honest review. If you know of something that we can work on, tell us and we'll do our best to address it. Ratings and reviews are the currency of the podcast world and they only take a few minutes of your time and mean the world to us. So thank you in advance. We really hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. We had an amazing time reading it. But we are really looking forward to our next book. You might have heard us talking about it. The next episode we are going to be releasing is Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. So look forward to that in the coming weeks. All the episodes will be dropped at once, just like normal. Appreciate it, guys. We'll see you then.